morning second service. Can everyone hear me okay? Good stuff. Right, so I thought I'd start this morning with a little bit of crowd participation. So I'm going to show you um, four slides that have um, some images on. And what I would like you to do is shout out what the images have in common. Can we get the first one? What do all these have in common? Yeah, tropical or exotic fruit. Nice and easy. Next one. How about this one? Yes. All actors that have played James Bond. Okay, third one. A little bit harder. What about these ones? Preston, yeah. They're all things, all places associated with Preston. Now, the final slide is very difficult. Let's see if you can get this one. What do all of these images have in common? Let me tell you, all of these pictures are fake. All these pictures are completely fake. They've all been generated by artificial intelligence software. And we are entering an era of human history where it's going to be very difficult to determine what is real and what is fake because artificial intelligence software now can generate images, it can generate video, audio, and text that is almost indistinguishable from reality. So let me begin by asking you this morning, what is your source of truth? In a world full of fake news and propaganda, what is your source of truth? Well, as Christians, we believe that the Bible is our ultimate source of truth. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we continue with the second part of our Equip series. So last Sunday, Louise began by speaking about spiritual intimacy with God. And she spoke about setting aside time in your day to just listen and sit in his presence and to pray. And when we pray, we speak to God. But the main way that God speaks back to us is through his word. So that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. So there's going to be three sections to this morning's message. The first is what is the Bible? Second is how do we know that we can trust it? And third is what is the Bible's purpose and role in equipping us to fulfill our calling? So, first question, what is the Bible? Well, there's multiple ways that we can answer this question. We can say it's a library of 66 books that were written by 40 authors over three continents over 2,000 years. It's a collection of various types of literature, narrative, poems, laws, letters, songs, etc. It's a diverse collection of genres. We can also say that the Bible is God's love letter to us, where he gives us encouragement and his promises. We can say that the Bible is God's guidebook for life, a practical manual for navigating the waves of life, a sort of spiritual compass, if you will, that provides direction and purpose. And all of these things are absolutely true. But what does the Bible say about itself? What does the Bible say about itself? So our reading from this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says this, it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training, and sorry, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's begin by asking, what does it mean when it says God-breathed? What does it mean that all scripture is God-breathed? Well, let's jump back to the Garden of Eden, okay? It says that God breathed on Adam and he became a living soul. We see in the Gospels after his resurrection, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive Holy Spirit. 
So the breath of God is something that brings forth life. So what it's saying is that the scripture, the Bible, has God's life. It's got his breath. Okay? It's claiming that it's more than a mere human creation. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible was written by more than 40 human authors. And you can see their unique personalities and writing styles in the different books, right? But it's claiming that it's much more than that, that it's inspired by God. And therefore, it holds his authority and it holds his power to affect change in our lives, but only if we're willing to submit to it in humility. So that leads us on to the second part of this morning's message. And that's how do we know that we can trust the Bible? Perhaps more importantly, how can we be sure that its origin is in fact divine? Now, I would like to spend about 10 minutes on this because I think it's extremely important. Because if the Bible isn't trustworthy, then why bother paying it any attention, right? So I didn't become a Christian until my early 20s. And to be honest, I'm a little bit of a skeptic. Just ask my wife. I don't take people's word for anything, and it drives me nuts because I have to check everything myself. That's just the type of person I am. I, I can't believe something that, or put my faith in something that is irrational or um, unreasonable or illogical. So what I would like to do is give you a few reasons why, I'm, why I am absolutely convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the Bible is in fact trustworthy and, more importantly, the Word of God. So, firstly, whilst the Bible is not a history book in the classic sense, it is historically accurate and it has stood the test of time in that sense. Archaeological discoveries are made almost weekly that support the historicity of the Bible. Coins bearing the name of biblical kings, inscriptions on ancient stones, um, or locations spoken about in the Bible are excavated and unearthed all the time. There's just a few recent headlines here. Now, obviously, we can't prove the Bible in every single sense, because that would be putting an unfair burden of proof on it. But what it is to say is that every time something is found, Every time something is excavated, it validates the historicity of the Bible. It stood the test of time archaeologically, historically. But not just historically, also scientifically. Now again, the Bible is not a science book. However, it is scientifically accurate. It describes things about nature thousands of years before we understood them scientifically. In the book of Job, for example, which is the oldest book in the Bible, it was written thousands of years ago. It speaks about the earth free-floating in space. It says this, it says, He stretches out the north over empty space, and he hangs the earth upon nothing. Now, that's pretty amazing, because it wasn't until the 16th century that the idea that the earth goes around the sun was accepted by astronomers. And here it is in the Bible, thousands of years before that. Elsewhere in the same book, in the book of Job, he writes about the water cycle. He says this, he says, he wraps up the water in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. And elsewhere in the same book, he says this, he says, he draws up the drops of water, which is evaporation, which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. So that's the condensation and the precipitation. And in the book of Amos, which was written about 750 BC, 
it says he calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. Now, this is pretty amazing because it wasn't until the 1670s that we understood the water cycle, thanks to um, numerous experiments by two Frenchmen whose names I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce and embarrass myself. But again, it's pretty incredible that it's there in black and white thousands of years before we knew it scientifically. I mean, think about it. How would a farmer from the Middle East, living thousands of years ago, understand the water cycle? It isn't instinctive. You don't look at the clouds and see rain rising to the sky, do you? You wouldn't instinctively know that. So surely this is evidence that he had to have been inspired by someone who knew, i.e. God. And what's even more astounding is that at the time the Bible was written, every culture in the world had strange and superstitious beliefs about medicine and about healthcare. And yet none of these have found their way into the Bible. In fact, if you read the books of Moses, for example, you'll discover that the Israelites could not eat meat um, from animals that had died naturally. And of course, today, we know that dead animals um, carry diseases. We see that God orders those that have contagious diseases to stay outside of the camp. We see that they couldn't drink water from stagnant pools or from water that had been into contact with animals or meat. And again, it's only in the last 100 years that we've discovered that contaminated water can lead to infections like typhoid. And finally, it's got strict rules about hand washing and about bathing, especially after coming into contact with blood or unclean animals. And this is amazing as well, because it wasn't until the 19th century that doctors in hospitals started to wash their hands before seeing each patient. And yet, before we had an understanding about bacteria, about viruses, all these things, there it is in the Bible, hygiene rules. And it's pretty amazing, considering the fact that we're told that Moses was trained in all the wisdom of, of the Egyptians. Moses would have had the highest possible education as a prince of Egypt. And yet, if you know anything about Egyptology, you know that the Egyptians had some pretty weird ideas about healthcare. They would apply dung to open wounds. They would put things like lead or mercury or even arsenic into their potions, into their powders. Um, and they even drilled holes into people's skulls so that, quote-unquote, the evil spirit could escape. And yet none of these superstitious practices found their way into the Bible, which existed in every other culture at that time. It's countercultural. It goes against everything that Moses would have been taught that everyone knew. So surely the only explanation for this is that it was inspired by God. And on top of that, the Bible itself contains evidence of divine design. The way it fits together in, in a perfect unity and consistency defies mere human authorship. Let me show you what I mean. Have a look at this slide here. This slide shows 340,000 cross-references within the Bible itself. The um, ones that are above the line point forward and the ones below the line point backwards. Now just think about this. What are the chances that 40 authors separated by time and location could produce such a complex, precise web of references? How could 40 authors living in different times orchestrate such astounding cohesion? 
Surely this intricate web of references is evidence of a higher guiding hand. And perhaps most impressive of all is the fact that the Bible is prophetic. The Bible is prophetic. Now, I don't mean in a mere uh, vague, ambiguous way. I mean the Bible writes history in advance with precision. So, for example, when Jesus came, he fulfilled more than 100 specific prophecies, things that were outside of his control, such as where he was born, how he would be killed, who he would be buried with, who he would die with, the fact that he would be betrayed. Now, the skeptic, like me, might say, well, how do we know that these so-called prophecies weren't written after the events themselves and just made to look like prophecies? Well, it's an excellent question, but the answer is that we do know. We do know because we have written copies of those prophecies that have been dated hundreds of years before the events themselves. So in the 1950s and the 1940s, a series of caves were discovered near the Dead Sea in Israel, and a number of clay jars were found containing ancient scrolls. And one of them um, contained the scroll of the book of Isaiah, the entire scroll, the entire book. And what's amazing is it's almost identical to what we have today, minus a few sort of spelling variations. And when they dated that particular scroll, it was dated in the range of 350 to 100 BC. So even the latest possible dating is still 100 years before Jesus was even born. Okay. Now, this entire scroll is actually on display in Israel in a museum called the Shrine of the Book. And you can see the entire scroll because it's really long. It wraps all the way around and it's there for the world to see. A scroll that is um, centuries older than Jesus himself. And if you go there and you can read Hebrew, you'll read these verses on that scroll. But he was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet two of his generation protested, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of day and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Is that not the gospel? It is the gospel. And in fact, street evangelists have read that passage to random people on the street and asked them, who is this passage speaking about? 
And every single one of them say Jesus. And then they're astounded to discover it was written 700 years before he was born. And here we have, in black and white, for the world to see, a scroll that, that has that in, that, that predates Jesus by a very long time. And that's just one of many prophecies. So what it shows is that God's word has not been corrupted in over 2,000 years. And it shows that the prophecies written in it were genuinely written hundreds of years before the events themselves, meaning that the person that authored it has to be outside of time. It's evidence that God inspired the scripture. Now, I can stand here for hours and give you reason after reason why I believe the Bible is the word of God. But there's a big difference between knowing something up here, intellectually, in your head, and knowing it here, in your heart, experientially. And that's where I was in my early 20s. I was investigating the claims of Christianity and discovering all the things that I'm sharing with you now. But that was just here, my head. It hadn't gone head to heart yet. And that's something that you all need to experience for yourself. I can tell you about it, but you've got to experience its divine power for yourself. Let me tell you a quick story. So two years ago, I went away to the Lake District with my family for my 30th birthday party. And whilst I was there, I received a phone call that my granddad had had a serious accident. He'd fallen and he'd slipped in the bath and he was unable to move. He'd been led face down for 24 hours on one of the hottest days of the year. It was helpless. Couldn't, couldn't move. Thankfully, his daughter found him and he was rushed to hospital and they discovered that he had a serious infection and he was bruised internally and he was in a really bad way and as soon as I heard that news I was just I I just crumbled and I was away on holiday there was nothing I could do about that situation and I took out my emotions on my wife and my son and um, I was just in a really bad way But later on that day, after we'd put my son to sleep, I went for a drive to get some stuff from the shop. And as I was driving, I just listened to the Psalms. And I let the Psalms just wash over me. And I had a cry, and I just let the words just come come over me. And I felt an overwhelming sense of peace. And in that moment, God just assured me everything is going to be okay. Um, He brought a calm to me. You know, the situation hadn't changed. I still couldn't do anything about it. My granddad was still very poorly in hospital. But in that moment, through his word, he spoke to me and he assured me, he's going to be all right. And here we are, a couple of years later, and he's going to be 90 in December and he's doing great. So we can go to God in times of desperation and he can give us a peace and a comfort that defies our circumstances, that defies how we are feeling. So I can stand up here and tell you about the Word of God and hopefully try to get you excited about it, engaging with it, but you've got to experience its divine power for yourself. So that brings us to the final part of this morning's message, and that's the why. Why do we need God's Word to equip us so that we can fulfill our calling? So just back to this morning's verse. All Scripture is God-breathed, and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
let me use an analogy to tr try, try to explain this, okay? Imagine that you're going on a journey to somewhere that you've never been before. You sit in your car and you put the de um, postcode of the destination into your sat-nav. Now, just think about what you're doing there. Why are you doing that? Why are you putting your trust in the sat-nav? Well, you're putting your trust in the sat-nav because it's connected to a satellite. It's connected to a satellite via GPS. And the satellite has an aerial view of everything, the whole landscape. It can see the roads, it can see the rivers, it can see the traffic, it can see the roadworks, it can see everything. And the sat-nav will calculate the optimal route, taking all of that into consideration. It can see the end destination from where you are now, the end from the beginning. That's why we trust it. Well, it's the same with the Bible. We trust it because God knows the end from the beginning. Like the satellite that's 12,000 miles above the surface of the earth, God is all-seeing and all-knowing. The scripture is God-breathed. So the next thing that you do is you turn on your ignition and you set off driving and you follow the instructions of the sat-nav. Similar to what Paul says here, that it's profitable for teaching that is instructing us in the path of righteousness. But, but let's face it, we are all, all human and we all make mistakes. I can't tell you how many times I've taken a wrong turn or got lost when driving to a new holiday destination. I remember a couple of years ago, we were driving down to Cornwall and um, I kept taking the wrong turn and we were just going around in circles for ages. <laughs> But when you've been driving for hours and you're navigating down unfamiliar country roads, it's very easy to get lost. But thankfully, I had the sat-nav to tell me that I'd gone wrong. And that's what Paul means when he says that the scripture is profitable for rebuking. It tells us that we have taken a wrong turn. Now, the word rebuking can have a slightly negative connotation. We can sort of think of God stood there or wagging his angry finger at us, but it's not like that. The way I think of it is like my son is nearly three and every day I have to rebuke him because he's jumping on the sofa. And I'm not telling him that to spoil his fun. I'm telling him that because I don't want him to fall and hurt himself. I'm telling him that because I love him. And it's the same with God and God's word. He doesn't tell us not to do things to be a spoil sport. It's for our own protection because he loves us. But it doesn't just point out what we shouldn't be doing, it points out what we should be doing, how we can correct our behavior. When we take a wrong turn, the sat-nav doesn't leave us stranded, it calculates a new route for us. And that new route might add an extra half an hour to your journey. It might require an extra stop at the service station, it might even mean that you're late to where you're trying to get to. But there's an important lesson here. That God, by his grace, will redirect us and help us to get back on the right path. But that doesn't mean that we are immune from the consequences of bad decisions. And nor does it mean that we are free from the effects of the bad decisions of others. You know, if there's a crash on, on the M6, right, it affects everyone. It doesn't matter how good you are at following you, you, that, that sat-nav. But what the sat-nav will do is it will reroute you and guide you through it. And if you are driving to the same destination on a regular basis, something starts to happen. Your reliance on the sat-nav will decrease over time because you'll become familiar with the roads 
and the instructions that the sat-nav has given you previously will embed themselves into your memory. So even if your sat-nav battery dies, um, it doesn't matter because you've remembered the instructions that it gave you in the past and you can allow them to guide you. But it's the same with scripture. As you read them, as you meditate and chew on them, they'll become part of you. There's a verse in Psalm 119, verse 11, that says this. It says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's what happens as the word of God becomes part of us. It's not just an intellectual head knowledge of the Bible, although that is true. It's an intimate experiential knowledge of God himself. And when his word becomes part of us, something drastic happens, something changes. Our desires, our beliefs, our behaviors and priorities will all change. And that's what it means to be fully equipped for every good work. Now, admittedly, opening the Bible for the first time can be a pretty daunting task. Where do we start? So I'm just going to end this morning with six practical suggestions on how you can get into it and engage with it in new and exciting ways. So the first one, Spoken Gospel. This is a, uh, a non-profit organization that puts out free online resources. They've got written and video-based daily devotions for almost every single chapter in the Bible. Each devotion is only a couple of minutes long and will explain in simple terms what it means, how it points to Jesus, and what it means for our life. You can get that at spokengospel.com. Second, we have audio Bibles. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it much easier to remember something if I hear it. If I read something, I have to read it over and over and over again for it to sink in. But if I hear it, I remember it. So I highly recommend some of the audio Bibles particularly these ones here. They're fantastic. And also, you can listen to them in the car, if you're doing the cleaning, whatever. So really highly recommend that. Thirdly, Bible journaling. Now, if you are a creative or artistic person, one way to meditate on Scripture is to draw it as you read it. You can underline things, you can draw little pictures, and they can help you to remember certain passages and this is actually something that my wife does. She's got several um, notepads on our bookshelf that are full of her illustrations that help her to um, visualize what she's hearing as she's reading it. And sometimes she creates images that I'm like, uh, how have you got that from that? But when she explains it, it makes sense. And because she's a visual learner, she... Um, can journal and use a creative gift to bring her closer to God's word. So if that appeals to you, grab yourself a journaling Bible or just a notepad and get your creative juices flowing. Fourth suggestion, maybe you're a visual person. Maybe you don't like reading text. So I would highly recommend these. These are called word-for-word Bible comics. And what is great about these is they are historically accurate. So a lot of research goes into getting the landscapes and the outfits and architecture and everything historically accurate. They are word for word from the New International Version, and they are untamed. So unlike children's Bibles, um, they are untamed. So you, you can see on the right here, it's the panel where Jesus is receiving the lashes. 
Now, it's done in a subtle, tasteful way. It's not gory or unnecessarily violent, but it still visually depicts the horror that he went through before going to the cross. And just a few um, panels from the book of, of Esther. You can see the really bright and engaging. Go to the next one. Next one. And then at the back, it's got all of the archaeology and um, everything that goes into drawing them. Great stuff. Next suggestion is Bible films. So there's a number of Bible films that are word for word from the scripture, and they just help to bring it to life. When you can see it, it just helps to really immerse you in that world. And you can get these on YouTube or on DVD. And finally, the YouVersion app, which you can install on your phone, on your tablet, and you can do reading plans. They've got all of the free audio Bibles. They've got the Bible films. Um, you can set reminders and do all sorts of really great stuff. So if we could leave this list of suggestions up after the service, that, that would be great. But let me just end by saying this, that we can have as many Bibles as we want. We can have all the resources in the world, but if the Bible stays on the shelf, there's going to be no change, no transformation. That's why this is an issue of the heart, right? It's an issue of desire. And there's a verse in 1 Peter 2, it says this. It says, like newborn babies crave the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So is that you this morning? Do you have a craving like a newborn baby, craving its mother's milk for the word of God? Do you have a desire to get to know him through his word? Or are you apathetic? Because the rate and speed at which you grow is directly proportional to your desire. If you have a hunger, if you have a desire, you are going to grow and you are going to grow very quickly. And if you don't, your growth is going to be slow or non-existent. So this is my challenge for you this morning. Are you committing to asking the Holy Spirit to give you a deep desire, a deep hunger for his word? Are you willing to actively, intentionally seek, seek deeper spiritual intimacy with God? Because it's a two-way thing. He can give you the desire, but you have to do something about it. You've got to be intentional. So if that's you this morning, if you are willing to commit to doing that, let me end by praying for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has your divine fingerprint all over it. We thank you that it's got your authority, that it's got your life, it's got your essence, and that it's got your power to affect change in our life. We thank you that, that the God who is beyond the universe, beyond anything that we can comprehend, wants us to know him intimately, and he's given us something to do that. He's given us his word. It's amazing. So I just pray that you give each of us a hunger, a, a desire that will not be satisfied by anything else but your word. And we ask these things in the name of your son. Amen.